Well, hello and welcome to another edition of News of the World. You see how I did a, a tape slowdown voice? You remember tapes? All right. Well, welcome to News of the World, everyone. The program that looks at the news, turns it sideways, looks again and goes, aha. And in order to do this, you need two great aha minds. And we have them. Uh, my name is Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, sometimes called Bicycle Mark. I am located in Caldas de Reinha, Portugal, which is not a city you would ever find yourself in. But that's where I am. And on the other side of our tin can with a string in between is none other than Tim, Prit Tim Pritlove in, in Berlin. Yes. In the Meta Ebene Studios. Uh-huh. 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 It's a good song. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. It was a band. Th this has been a week full of uh huh, uh huh. <laughs> so yeah, it's more like the uh huh style of uh huh. Yeah, I had a lot of what? <laughs> yeah, a lot of those. It's what the internet calls a WTF. Yeah, big WTF week. Yes, and uh, I mean, there's lots of news already in the mainstream about. The big topics, but we're gonna we're gonna look at some of them and run through them and maybe point out little things that might be, I don't know, useful. So the big story is, of course, the Euro Ukraine. Uh, is it? <laughs> well, sort of. We 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 last time we spoke about it, this was still ongoing, and we didn't really know how it would all turn out. And then there was a big turnout, and everybody thought like, oh yeah, they're winning, and. Uh, Democracy is coming back and whatnot. And now, before we had a chance of discussing that situation, we have a new one um, now. So, in short, after all those protests uh, were occurring at Maidan, uh, Yanukovych, well, he didn't really step back, but he was sort of pushed out yeah. by the parliament that decided that it might be better to, you know, drop him and uh, voted for a new president and um, new government and everything and uh, so it looked well but in a way at least the putino mm -hmm. um, did not agree that this should be the end of the story yeah that's the thing we were going to talk about the the yanukovych exit which you just talked about but actually that's been pushed down because of what's going on uh, by the way the the yanukovych yacht is gone. Uh, so he may have left by boat. We know he's in Russia, but we didn't know how he got there. Uh, I saw footage of the uh, marina down in uh, the Crimea and the Yanukovych yacht missing. I wanted to report that here first, or second, actually. I think I saw it on Euronews. Uh, but so he leaves, yeah, and uh, you know, there were interesting things after he left, like You have this transition government, which is still going to be significant because they're in control in, in Kiev until elections happen, which I think is supposed to be within a month, uh, at least um, best case scenario. And th there were interesting things like um, big figures or important figures of the protest movement actually became part of the cabinet. Uh, I saw the minister of health, the new minister of health, was someone who had been doing a lot of first aid work in the protests, uh, which were very violent sometimes. Uh, the Minister of Anti-Corruption, that was a new office that was supposed to come. She was an important figure, I believe. She was badly 
injured. I, I don't have her name in front of me, but she was badly, badly injured by the, uh, the police during the protests. There was a youth minister who himself was tortured. So it, it was an interesting list of people, even if it was temporary. Uh, and then other things that came out this week, before we get to the actual uh, Russian troops on the ground, um, you had Yanukovych leaks, which isn't the most catchy of titles. It's no <laughs> Vati links, leaks or, or WikiLeaks, but okay, Yanukovych links. No, Just don't Yanukovych. try. It doesn't work. But no. anyway, they, they found all these documents in one of his mansions and they had been dumped in a, a pool or I don't know, a bucket of water, whatever he used for his dipping his feet in the water. And they started photographing and documented these articles. I've been to the website, uh, which is run by a handful of journalists. It does have an English section, but nothing's happening there yet. I'm, I'm obviously there rushing to catch up with what's happening. Did I say rushing? Ha ha ha. Um, so uh, this would be interesting, and this could still be interesting, uh, for, especially for us non-Russians or Ukrainian speakers. But uh, even for them, you know, to have journalists sorting through a semi-dictator's documents, finding all kinds of transactions, proving anything from illegal activity to just really kind of scumbag activity. Um, so this was all going on before, and then we have Saturday, this past Saturday, we're speaking to you today on a Monday, the 3rd of March, um, you have the reports of troops, and, and, and it still continues to be not, well, they don't have any markings on their uniforms, um, it's, it's now known that uh, the Kremlin uh, gave the green light for Russian troops to be deployed to Ukraine. And, and I should mention, it's interesting to read, you'll rarely see it in the news, um, Putin gave a speech, I guess, to Parliament uh, when they gave him this power. And it, it gives this impression that you don't get very much in the media, which is, here's why we're sending troops to the Ukraine. And of course, if you haven't heard it, their reasons are, they see the situation in the Ukraine as lawlessness. Of course, you know, this is what a lot of uh, important actors would say if they don't agree with the result somewhere. You've heard this before when a protest movement rises and one side says they're fighting for liberation and the other side goes, what a mess or, ooh, you know, this is horrible. So Putin does this thing that is kind of predictable where he says, uh, oh, lawlessness is reigning. Uh, there's an illegal group of people in charge of the country. And if you want to get really technical, there's a way that you could, you know, he could justify himself and say, yeah, that's, that's what it is. So that's what he's doing. That's, that's the pretense anyway. And I guess this is important to mention for me because so often it's said that, you know, he's been compared to Hitler these days. Everybody gets compared to Hitler at some point, but um, <laughs> he's being, <laughs> it's, it's inevitable. A poster goes up with you, that terrible mustache. But... Um, and that's not that's not cut and dry. That's really not what's going on. It's got a lot more layers to it. Um, and of course, you have if you just push Russia to the side for a second, you have the the these groups in the Crimea who don't identify very much with what's happening in Kiev. Uh, they may not even feel very Russian, but they don't feel necessarily Kiev Ukrainian these days. Well, um, I, w I wouldn't say that they are not feeling Russian um, because, first of all, I, I, I think they do. Uh, this area has been a part of Russia yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, not that long ago and was actually 
uh, given or made mm-hmm. a part of the Ukraine by uh, Khrushchev, which yeah, the gift. himself was uh, Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you always had this strange divide within the U- Ukraine that the uh, south, south uh, eastern part of the country is, well, Russian speaking and mm-hmm. yeah, well tied with uh, Russia, while the uh, rest speaking Ukrainian, which is still a Slavic, yes, you know, language, but <laughs> yes. uh, but it's different. Um, you know, being much more oriented to uh, the rest of Eastern Europe. So, yeah. and that's that's the situation we found ourselves in. But the before the troops went on the ground, there was also this decision of the um, Krim Parliament. You know, to to sort of yeah. take action and more or less invite the Russians to come. And mm-hmm. yeah, it <laughs> it looks really like a coup, and it's. Uh, Russia has moved quickly. Putin, Putin has moved quickly. And he sort of, well, could because there was, again, nobody stopping mm-hmm. him at all. And you know, his advantage is that he can just decide while Europe is, you know, as usual when it comes to foreign stuff, you know, totally divided and there's no real power structure within the EU to, to take action uh, here or at least take some kind of position. Mm. And well, the U.S. is far yeah. away, and they're probably not going to send troops to the Black Sea because this would bring everybody really into trouble. Mm. So, well, uh, they might care about the Ukraine. I'm not so sure they uh, care so much about the Tatars, you know, uh, yes. which are the the only significant minority in the Krim. Yeah. which themselves were sort of put there. Um, and they are, from what I know, a Muslim ethnic yes. group. You know, that's uh, the next problem coming up, I guess. A fun fact, my, my girlfriend is Tatar. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, fun fact. And uh, I mentioned that. I mentioned this the, the group in the Crimea out of curiosity to see if it rings a bell. And uh, the first thing she said was, yes, yes. But uh, you know they're they're different. <laughs> uh, so different you know. from what the other Tatars. Oh, <laughs> but I mean it's it's of course it's much more complicated than that, and, and maybe warrants a whole interview. Um, but yeah, this is another group that that is in play now, and and um, sides with either Russia or depending on what happens, an independent Crimea. An interesting thing I hadn't thought about until I saw it in the press, I think this one was written in the Global Post, which we've talked about many times and used as a news source. Um, They pointed out other types of situations that still exist, like what's happening or what's starting to happen in the Crimea. And uh, I'm thinking here about um, Abkhazia. I'm thinking about... um, What's the other breakaway republic? South Um, Ossetia. Yeah, and these are, there's lots of different names, you know, and I don't want to uh, manipulate it one way or the other, but these are regions that have a, co- a dispute, a conflict, and where Russia de facto administrates them, even though the country that they're, they used to be part of or are part of refuses to recognize it. And they're like, I think the Global Post uses the word frozen conflicts. And of course, 
what we're talking about in the Crimea isn't frozen yet. I guess frozen is when nothing happens and it's just stuck. But this could go down as another frozen conflict where Russia uh, reigns to some extent. Have you ever heard about the Community for Democracy and Rights of Nations? Community for Democracy and Rights of Nations. Kern? No. <laughs> Yeah, no, nobody knows about it. Uh, funny enough, in, in Germany, we usually call them the community of uh, not officially um, recognized states. And mm -hmm. it's a movement, you know, it's sort of like the, the Commonwealth of Unrecognized States. That's actually an alternative name. And the members are Abkhazia, mm -hmm. South Ossetia, mm -hmm. Transnistria. Oh, which is yeah. this tiny slice of the uh, also pretty tiny Moldavian Republic, right. you know, also which Russian is also control. Russian, they're all yeah. Russian, and Nagorno-Karabakh, oh, which is in uh, Armenia. Yeah, okay, great. This is like a good pub quiz. So, yeah, so these are all sort of, um, you know, Russian exclave somehow you know not recognized yeah. by anybody probably except russia and yeah that's their union you know somehow and i wonder if crimea is just going to be the fifth member of this uh group <laughs> yeah you know, you know what i also wonder and this might be have already been outlined by a good analyst slash journalist and, and maybe someone in the comments for for news of the world can say it um from each of these places or from all these places What do you get for being the de facto, you know, for being Russia in this case? What do you actually get? If we assume that everything is based on money or income benefit, you know, what's the benefit? I'm not, because I'm not quite sure. Okay, land, but... Oh, yeah, I mean, the, the Crimea is a, a real strategic, geostrategic asset. Uh, it's not without reason. Sea, it's yeah. the, the place where the Russians already have their Black Sea fleet. Yeah, You know, so they are already there. It wasn't really... It's more... I mean, this invasion was more about leaving their barracks and not so much about <laughs> moving into the country because they've all always been there. And yeah. they're all with, with all their uh, marine power. And it's funny that, that even the uh, head of the Ukrainian marine was sort of <laughs> defected to the Russians, he had, you know. He had the job for a day, by the way. A oh, day. yeah. He was announced <laughs> and then he left. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a riser. From my impression, I mean, totally independent of what you think of Russia uh, in, in pursuing all this, I don't really have the feeling that the strong majority in the Crimea is really that interested in the rest of the Ukraine. Mm. I mean, there are de facto a Russian state. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, yeah. it's in Russia interest, it's in the interest, you know, to have control yeah. over this area. And if it's only to secure their marine, to secure their military uh, facilities, but I think it's much more. I mean, it's a very valuable space uh, at the Black Sea, so. Yeah. In in many ways, mm. and, and, and Russia tries to, you know, get land where they can and all these areas where already people live who are russian you know they they have their hands on now right. and we already named them uh recently and there's no way of them returning to whatever country they uh 
were belonging before because it's just not going to happen. So I don't think that Europe or the US has much to do about this. Russia is just going to, you know, keep it like this. Hmm. By the way, this this could be a good time to introduce the, even though it's a little late, but the news quote of the week, if I can give you one, Tim. Yeah, give it to uh, me. Here it is. You just don't, in the 21st century, behave in 19th century fashion by invading another country on completely trumped-up pretext. Who do you think said that? <laughs> this for sure comes from the U.S., <laughs> yes what year uh no. <laughs> what year do you mean it's not a new quote it is a new quote it is a new quote yeah uh well you uh i don't know who said it, it I, I i only hope it's not obama but <laughs> but it's probably somebody very close very close to him. uh carrie yes yes you win oh <laughs> <laughs> and yes, this fine quote by John Kerry yesterday has been getting quite a lot of attention <laughs> because it kind of sounds like something the U.S. Yeah, might have done. Yeah, I can't really wrap my hand around it. Uh, it sounds familiar somehow. Yeah. Hmm. When I saw that, I thought, yeah, quote of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Right, we'll put I didn't look this up. I really... Yeah, we'll I, put that in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I think. Okay, one, I, I get one point now. <laughs> That's right, Tim score. <laughs> All right, let's get to other news because there is other news. You may not know it by turning on any news channel. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to do some Uganda and people have perhaps in the mainstream press seen some stories going around. Even on Facebook, uh, you get a lot of mentions uh, about what's going on in Uganda as the president has passed... Uh, severe anti-gay laws. They're actually described as some of the most severe anti-gay laws in the world, but that, that gets tricky because we have to compare it to the rest of the world and some places don't have official laws. Uh, but here we go. The law introduces a maximum penalty of life imprisonment for those convicted of homosexuality. And it requires Ugandans to report anyone they suspect of being gay. Suspect of being gay. Yeah, so you can you can rat out your neighbor. Uh, of course, they can't. I don't think they can enforce this. Uh, not to get into s silly specifics, but you know, it, it requires Ugandans like, unless they go around saying, "Hey, report somebody," and then out of pressure, you just you just name anyone. Um, and this is of course getting criticism from around the world. John Kerry himself, the great quoter, uh, has been uh, criticizing Uganda and saying this is greatly disappointing. Um, there was a tabloid, I think it's called Red Pepper, that in tabloid fashion published a list of the top uh, most powerful gay people in Uganda and said, you know, basically, get them, let's get them. And a lot of people p circulated this on Facebook and said, you know, look at the horror. And it is horror, but it is a tabloid. I wasn't as shocked when I saw that because I don't actually expect anything, uh, you know, respectable from Red Pepper in Uganda. But all right, fair enough. It is pretty scary when a newspaper publishes a list of people and says, get them. Um, I was looking at analysis of this and, and sort of, you know, what happens now. And, you know, one thing that I think is important to point out, how does this happen? Why does this happen? Um, local media and 
the people who are in favor of this law and government have managed to make anything anti-gay to sound like patri- patriotism. So if you love Uganda, you got to find the homosexuals. And they've put these two together. They've married them in speeches and in press uh, publications. Uh, and this has been very successful. I mean, people have not, you know, surely not the entire country, but enough people don't have a problem with this or, or believe that this is these two things go together. Mm. Um, and also the other thing is, They've, they've brought this whole idea of resisting the West telling us what to do. So it's like, we're going we're gonna to make a law against homosexuality because the West doesn't want us to, or because the powerful nations say, don't. We, they don't tell us what to do. And this is a dangerous marriage where you, you make it about, if you want to be a resisting you know, uh, power from outside, you've got to be against homosexuality. These are terrible things to come together at the same time. Um, <clears throat> And apparently the MP, David Bahati, who is the author of the bill, is, of course, a rapidly rising politician and very popular. And what he does is he tells stories and and justifies this by saying, you know, in other countries, homosexuals harm children. And so, again, you say, oh, wait a minute, this is about protecting children. And everybody goes, "Mm mm-hmm, pass that law. Mm -hmm. And, of course... The, the relationship between homosexuality and harming children is nil. It's, this is ridiculous, but they are inventing these things as they go along. They even bring scientists. I heard with, and when they passed this bill, President Museveni had these scientists next to him that could prove that uh, being gay has nothing to do with genetics or, or uh, yeah, it's just, it's just uh, bad luck or you made a bad choice or something like that. Yeah, it reminds me of um, my most favorite uh, movie, Brazil, in where there mm-hmm. were these posters hanging around, and one of them saying, "Don't suspect a friend, report him." Oh yeah, ah. good poster. And <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the old story uh, of you know diverting from you not actually acting in the name of the public and doing whatever, whatever kind of things in politics and then you point to the real enemy and you say like, oh yeah, this is all their faults and uh, sometimes it's homosexual, sometimes it's Jews, sometimes it's uh, somebody else. Homosexuals seem to be very popular these days uh, as being yeah. like the, 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 the source of all, all evil and we just had this in Russia and now Uganda is really stepping up one notch and um, you know doing it in a way and I, I mean the problem is that or one of the problems here uh, is that, that in Africa this discussion is still on a totally different level as we are used to it in uh, Europe and Western world in, in general mm-hmm. um, and it might be uh, bad in, in uh, Russia but I, I think it's going on on a totally different level in um, in Africa because especially everything that revolves around sexuality in general uh we also see this in the hiv uh discussions you know uh with still lots of um strange strange ideas of what the reason of hiv is and how you can uh, prevent it but nobody's really pointing to the real problems although they should know better so it's good to have a scapegoat and homosexuals seem to be the perfect fit for this unfortunately yeah. 
And I was looking at it. Museveni himself has been president since 1986. He's not number one in the longest serving leaders uh, in Africa, but he's up there in the top three. And, uh, you know, you start to wonder, is this a really a democratically elected president or a guy that just you can't get out of office? And this is a good way to take the spotlight off of things like that. And I've also read, although nothing specific uh, at this point, but it's all they're, they're making oil deals for new, disco- new discoveries of oil. And apparently some of these deals might not be beneficial for the country or make Museveni himself look very good. But now they can be made because everybody's too busy with this, not just, you know, passing ridiculous laws, but criticizing the ridiculous laws. So this is the big story that's loudest in the country. Yeah, so there might be a hidden agenda, and uh, it's probably obvious that there is is one. And who who knows who of his uh, enemies uh, in whatever deal he wa- likes to strike is yeah. going to be accused of this homosexuality? And you know, a, a good friend of mine has been working in Nigeria, and uh, she warned that from conversations she's having there. Uh, not only in Nigeria, she had heard also on the other side that in Kenya they might uh, propose such a law. So th- also scary is that this could spread uh, oh. and, and other countries could start to make the same ridiculous connections and, and pass laws like this. So yeah, that, I mean, that's also something. Yeah, and, and we've seen this before, not with homosexuals, but with white farmers, you know, being accused uh-huh. of being the root of all evil in Zimbabwe. With Robert mm-hmm. Mugabe uh, trying to secure his throne, which more or less worked, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's a tendency, and that's nothing new in politics. Uh, the yeah. question is really: Have we achieved some kind of global attention to these kind of problems and uh, a, a, a method of actually doing something about this, or are they just going to proceed uh, the same way as Russia is going to proceed in the Crimea? Uh, I. Th- I think the first part we've got a method of knowing, getting the information out, but the second part we don't have. There's no, what are we going to do about it? We're just going, you know, if if you're on Facebook or Twitter, you've heard about what's going on in Uganda, probably, mm-hmm. and it spreads and people are angry for many good reasons and, and usually it's personal, you know, you, you, you don't agree whether you're homosexual or not, you don't agree with this, this it's a human rights issue. Fine, that spreads, but then what to do, right? How do we create change in Uganda? Well, if you support an organization, then you tell your local organization, hmm, don't do business with the Ugandan government. Wait a minute, but we do want to help Ugandans and not punish them just because their government is making ridiculous laws. So again, it gets very tricky if if NGOs say we won't do business with with Uganda. Does that mean the government or does that mean the people? Do we cut off operations? No, so this is where we don't really have uh, a clear path of what to do. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Uh, this one was in the news last week, and I wanted to make sure it gets mentioned. Uh, actually, when it first happened, there were, there were reports from Lebanon, uh, although the first part of the report is n- nothing happened in Lebanon. It happened on the Syrian side. But basically, the Israeli Air Force... Uh, bombed a convoy. This is not the first time this has happened, and probably not the last time. But uh, a convoy was bombed, and the Israeli government denied it and has denied it, and to this point has refuses to confirm it. But 
Uh, Time Magazine got a confirmation from an unnamed official. That's the only way to get it, I guess. Uh, Basically, the Israeli Air Force bombed a convoy of weapons coming from uh, Syria, trying to get into Lebanon. Uh, There's a list... Uh, this is, again, how do we get this information? You know, okay, some reporters on the ground, maybe. Uh, The Israeli military, no, officially they don't say anything. But uh, apparently anti-aircraft missiles, rockets, uh, even anti-ship missiles produced in Russia that were in Syria, we know Syria is a big purchaser of Russian weapons, they were on their way to Lebanon, and of course the Israeli uh, military is watching this closely and has long said... They would act to stop any such transfer of weapons that would make Hezbollah stronger in Lebanon. And so they did it. They bombed. And and, and as far as we know, it worked. It's considered a success. That's how it gets reported, um, even though you can't get an official confirmation. Um, And this is another one of those ongoing conflicts within the conflict. Um, And and I was reading this thinking, like, you know, there's, there's so little in terms of how to prove that not only, okay, that this happened, I, I believe it from reports on the ground, you can prove it, mm-hmm. but that it was successful. This whole thing of success is so tricky to prove, you know? No, nobody would say, oh, yeah, you destroyed our weapons we were moving. Hezbollah will say, no, we're fine. <laughs> and yeah, but it so shows, I read these reports. Yeah, it, yeah. Sh- it shows that the Israelis really have a very, I mean, no surprise, has a very close look here at what's going on in this uh, whole crisis and is more than willing to intervene whenever they see a uh, um, very obvious um, uh, move that could, uh, you know, provide their direct enemies with weapons and, and other advantages. Mm. Yeah. And and so, I mean, the conflict in Syria carries on and these kind of attempts will also carry on. And, and to some extent, Israeli bombings uh, on uh, along the border are never going to be big news anymore. They're just going to be news, <laughs> but just second, third page news. Yeah. Like the uh, Syrian conflict itself, yes, which it's has completely... You know, vanished from yeah. from the news. True. Uh, here's one from the Indian elections. As you know, uh, I'm a fan of Indian elections. I'm I'm watching the build up, uh, even though we still have quite a few uh, weeks left. But a third front has been formed, and I always like a third front, uh, <laughs> even though they will never be as big as Modi or Gandhi, the top two candidates, the mainstream candidates. Uh, 11 parties have come together, and these actually, all 11 of these parties have quite a bit of power in their states. As many people will know, uh, although India may have a Congress party-run government, it depends on where you are in the country, you have certain parties that are very powerful. Mm -hmm. So the Communist Party uh, of India has long been powerful in uh, in states, uh, I think like Bihar, um, Uttar Pradesh, and even though they're not you know, big on the national scene, they're doing fine on the local scene and can implement their their programs. Well, they've gotten together 11 parties. They call themselves the Third Front, until further notice, that's their name. Um, and they're trying to provide an alternative to Gandhi and Modi. And many people say this is a sort of sideshow and it'll never amount to anything. But I think it's interesting and significant because, like in many countries these days, 
not everyone feels represented by the top two parties of their country. Uh, and, and here we see one example of that, especially in a place with as many people as India. You never know the power of a third party. Uh, usually these kind of coalitions don't last that long because uh, especially once there's some new power uh, gained, you know, <laughs> mm. first of all, once they're all more or less powerless, at least on a na national level, it doesn't really, really uh, matter that much. But then there's also no big need to, you know, co pursue that coalition. It's only interesting once you have got some power, probably mm. because you become part of a government coalition, And then everybody, you know, of these 11 might start thinking that they are probably more important than the other 10 and, you know, try to get mm. more. And then you have the problem because uh, the, the advantage of a, of, a, of a single party always is that, that the, uh, the power struggle is usually, is usually already done. You know, it's totally clear who's leading the pack and who's getting what and, 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 so they can sort of focus on the battle within this government while loose coalitions, especially those that sort of know like, oh yeah, we can't win anything unless we form a coalition. <laughs> that's the only thing that's holding them together. But in terms of uh, program, in terms of you know actual content and policy, this probably... Not so much. I mean, what's the spectrum here? You have a communist party on the one end, and what else? And then independent, uh, yeah. All so kinds of... Nationalists, yeah. not nationalists, because that's the BJP, but yeah, different kind of nationalist independent parties and left. Hmm. Yeah. We'll see. But uh, that's a good thing that you point out, actually, that in India, I think it's been a while since any party had an absolute majority and this whole coalition thing is... Uh, part of the game and will be part of the game probably in this election as well. Mm -hmm. hmm. I'm going to keep an eye out on the third front and see if a fourth front doesn't come up <laughs> at some point. I thought we are the fourth front. Oh, that's right. Fourth front running in Indian elections. Hmm. People are shocked. Candidates are not Indian. <laughs> True. All right. There have been a lot of guns in this News of the World edition, but I have to add a few more. Uh, last week, I saw this news item coming out of Nigeria. A school was attacked, a, uh, a boarding school, uh, 29 students killed, and this is a Boko Haram attack. I believe they officially said it was them. Of course, we live in the era of groups taking official credit for doing horrible things. This occurred in the eastern Yobe state, uh, which is not far from the Cameroon border. And the story goes, Boko Haram militants attacked this boarding school. Uh, government says they killed 29. AFP, the Agence France Presse, has info about 42 more deaths, or at least 42 deaths. Um, oddly enough, according to local people, uh, there was a military presence nearby at like a checkpoint, and they left, and as soon as they left the uh, militants arrived. Some call that suspicious. That may also just be militants watching and knowing when it's time to come in. Uh, doesn't mean that the military is, is uh, sort of joined forces with the militants. But disappointingly, sadly, according to the governor of the Yobe state, the attack took about five hours. And throughout these five hours, no police or security forces showed up. 
Uh, it's not the first attack. Boko Haram actually is about attacking schools, uh, Western education. Boko Haram means Western education is a sin. Mm. And uh, when they do these attacks, they, I mean, they just open fire in a classroom. They do, they send women, girls home and say, you know, don't, don't do school, get married and, and be good religious. Yeah, I, I don't think it's just Western education. It's just education in general that they think is not a good thing. Because they consider the Nigerian government and their education program to be pro or just Western or, you know, whatever you want to call it, not, not mm. Islam, not their Islam. Yeah. Yeah. So that means that any school really in Nigeria uh, that, that follows the government uh, education standard is a target. And, and the government knows this. Of course, it's a huge country, but still... That will be one of the reasons why you have security and you know that your schools are a target, so you get ready to some extent. I mean, you also investigate where militants are. Of course, the president of Nigeria, the great Good Luck Jonathan, what a name, what a name. He says, you know, they're, they're, they're searching for them, they're, they're investigating this crime and so on. Good Luck Jonathan, that's his name. Yeah, and oh, that's also yeah. what we wish him. <laughs> True. It's a great name. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's it's there's not much to say about such things, I think. But uh, to some extent, I feel an importance to 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 spread the word or or document it that these attacks on schools, even if forty two isn't a big number, when you have disasters that you know hurt hundreds, if not thousands, it's still pretty significant that that schools in a country are are a target and are getting hit uh, regularly. Um, that that for me makes it well worthy of a news item and and I don't know keeping an eye on. Okay, so that brings us to the last segment, and this is of course the news source. Of yeah, news source the week. Mm -hmm. News source of the week. Uh, since, as we know, the Ukraine is big in the news. Of course, you have madness coming from the mainstream press. Uh, about World War III and uh, everything is on fire or whatever. So many bad news reports coming out. I, of course, in these situations, like Twitter because you have journalists on the ground, not just in the Ukraine, but in the Crimea. And you can get, yes, text reports, but you can also get photos. And thankfully, the Pointer Institute, which is an old name in my world of, from journalism in the United States especially, They published a list of journalists to follow on Twitter uh, with this whole Ukraine activity. And it was a pretty good list and, and well worth checking out, maybe choosing a few people in there to follow. And that reminded me to point out Pointer as a good news source, to point out Pointer. But um, Pointer they're actually is a school. Not, not, it's not only about this. I mean, this is an exception. No. It's just, just one report to where they're recommending Twitter accounts. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and that's what led me to them. They're actually a journalism school, uh, oh. which I did not realize because I've been reading their reports online for years now. But they're a school in Florida. Um, and they, you know, they fancy themselves quality journalism, teaching, investigative journalism. It's a sort of trying to raise the bar kind of place. Um, they also say, you know, they teach the teachers of journalism. Uh, which I can relate to. I've tried to teach some journalists in different parts of the world. 
Um, they were founded back in 1978, and they, uh, like I said, they're actually a school. They actually have a campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, I believe. Uh, so that's not as important as the actual website, which is a good source for uh, reports, uh, global news, and local, of course, in the United States, and also sort of this internal look at journalism and the media. Uh, so pointer.org is the website. And I'm a, I'm a fan. I've been a fan for a couple of years now. Great. That <laughs> brings us yeah. to the end of the show. Um, so mm -hmm. what's next? Oh, we've got uh, news coming up this week, probably. Stuff happening. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'll be oh, here in so. Portugal. <laughs> yeah, how long I should probably do a Portugal there? report. Uh, oh, another week. Yeah, I mean, some update on the general situation in Portugal would be interesting, too. I haven't talked about yep. this for a while, and there has been some some issues. I don't know how they all turned out in the end. Yeah, yeah, because they do their uh, their regular reports, or actually the the Troika gives its report card saying, like, Portugal has been good, pats it on the head, or Portugal has been bad, or good job saving your money, good job cutting your money. <laughs> So I'll, I'll, yes, I'll gather some information for a little update for our next edition of news, which I think, uh, yeah, we'll be back uh, probably next week. Does that sound good for you, Tim? Yeah. One more question. What's, uh, what's the situation with the Dubai taxi project? Are you still... uh, the Dubai, yeah, Dubai taxi project still going. We've got uh, three, maybe four. I would like to do a sort of compilation uh, edition of the podcast coming out. And a few tech stories uh, still to be written. I've slowed down a little because I'm in Portugal, so it's not, a, uh, it's not an everyday thing, but it's uh, a couple times a week. Material is coming out, and we still have the T-shirt production going out. Uh, as soon as I'm back in Amsterdam, they have to get delivered. So for my supporters, there's still things to come. Uh, so yeah, Dubai Pro Taxi Project still alive. And yeah. And uh, have you... Have you submitted a talk for uh, Republica this year? No, uh, I'm uh, for now. I'm not going to Republica. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm. I, I don't know. I have to do more gainful work in in Amsterdam uh, to make some money to save for my future Dubai taxi projects. Um, so at this point, I may not be at Republica. I don't have any plan. Okay. Yeah. But I know you'll be there because that's where I would be and that's where you <laughs> yeah, get to do good most things. Most probably. Yeah. But maybe something will change. We'll see. Uh, yeah. Okay. Good, Mark. All right. That's it for now. Yeah. We'll catch you all next week for another edition of news. Thanks for the comments. Thanks for the flatter donations. Thanks for your presence. Goodbye. Bye.